Section 30 of Pantrophion. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Gillian Hendry. Pantrophion by Alexis Soyer. Section 30. Wine. Bacchus, son of Ammon, was born in Egypt and was the first who taught his countrymen the act of cultivating the vine and of making wine. He is the same as Osiris, the famous conqueror of India. Should this assertion be contradicted, we shall only entreat any and every disputant to make his own choice of the god of vineyards from among the five heroes bearing the name of Bacchus, as we are too impartial to prefer any one in particular. Onopion, worthy son of one of these heroes, enriched the inhabitants of Chios with the first rosy wine that ever yet obscured their reason. Greece, Italy, and Sicily owed this wonderful liquor to the Egyptians. The Gauls received this sweet present from a Tuscan, who had been banished from Clusium, his country. And the cultivation of the grape spread rapidly till the reign of the sanguinary Domitian, who completed the catalogue of his crimes by tearing up the vines. The emperor Probos restored them to the disconsolate Gauls. That prince was certainly worthy of his name. Modern science, agreeing with Holy Writ, in Genesis 9, verse 20, looks upon the East as the common cradle of the vine and the human race. Palestine was renowned for its vines. Pliny speaks in praise of them, the vineyards constituted a part of the riches of the country, and they were preserved with the greatest care, so much so that Moses, with an especial view to vines, forbade the sowing of different seeds in the same field, on pain of confiscation. And it was done to encourage their cultivation, that that wise legislator exempted every person who had planted one from military service, and from all public duties, until the first vintage. Genesis chapter 22, verse 6. The growths of Lebanon, of Helbon, and of Sorek enjoyed an extraordinary reputation, and the delicious wine they produced was capable of inspiring the lyric David with that celebrated praise, by which intemperance has often dared to authorise reprehensible excesses. Psalm 103, verse 15. However, the Hebrews, a sober people, like all eastern nations, rarely made use of pure wine. They generally mixed it with a quantity of water, and only drank a little at some ceremonial feasts, and at the end of their repasts. They sometimes mixed it with perfumes and odoriferous drugs. Some nations seem to have had a great horror of wine. The Persians drank nothing but water and the inhabitants of Pontus, the Scythians, and the Cappadocians partook of this strange taste. The Arcadians, who lived on chestnuts and acorns, were not worthy of the favours of Bacchus. Neither were the troglodytes, ichthyophagists, and other swarms of hydropotes, who were as yet too little civilised to ask of drunkenness its illusions and its enchantments. The Egyptians would have thought it a profanation of their temples to carry in a flagon of the rosy liquid. 
but Sameticus came, 670 B.C., and that wise prince made them understand that a pot of beer is not worth a cup of good wine. The Romans asserted that their old king, Janus, planted the first vine in Italy, and that later Numa taught them how to trim it. That noble people knew how to appreciate such blessings, and in order to demonstrate that wisdom is always to be found in wine, they never failed to place on their altars the statue of Minerva beside that of Bacchus. The inflexible muse of history has preserved to us the name of the individual who doomed himself to a sorry sort of immortality by inventing the custom of mixing water with wine. It was Cranaus, king of Athens, 1532 B.C. The gods, doubtless to punish him, caused a great part of Greece to be inundated, and it was not long before he was dethroned. Pliny accuses the obscure Staphyl, son of Scython, of this deprivation of taste, which gained upon imitators to such an extent that, in the time of Deodorus of Sicily, 45 BC, the guests still mixed water with their wine at the end of the repast. It is true that they were then all intoxicated. Lycurgus was no doubt ignorant of this practice when he had the barbarity to destroy the vines of the Lacedaemonians under pretext of putting an end to the disorders caused by intemperance. It would have been preferable, says Plutarch, to have united the nymphs with Bacchus. The ingenious philosopher insists on the mixture being made by a fourth, a fifth, or an octave, in the same manner as the chords in music, which charm our ears. The fifth was obtained by pouring three measures of water on two of wine. One part water and two parts wine made the octave. A quarter of wine and three quarters of water produced the fourth. A most inharmonious chord, struck only by inexperienced and unskilful hands. Hippocrates, great physician as he was, had already somewhere advised this deplorable dereliction from all wise doctrines. So true is it that science sometimes goes astray. But happily for his glory, that learned man further on recommends us to drink pure wine, and to drink enough for joy to dissipate our griefs, and rock us in the sweet errors of hope. The god of grapes had everywhere fervent admirers, except perhaps among the Scythians. These schismatics refused to worship a divinity who caused the faithful to become intoxicated. In other places they sacrificed to him a tiger, in order to show the power of his empire, and zealous disciples, with their heads crowned with branches of the vine, holding in one hand a crater and in the other a torch, ran with dishevelled hair about the streets, shouting to the son of Jupiter, the terrible Evius, in the silence of the night. The Romans addressed to him special prayers twice a year, on the occasion of the wine festivals, which took place in the months of May and September. In the first they tasted the wine, and during the second they implored the god to grant Italy fine weather and abundant vintages. The god could not reasonably refuse this request, for the vine-dressers spared neither labour nor fatigue 
to procure an abundant harvest. They were constantly seen disencumbering the plant of a too luxurious foliage, thereby exposing the grapes to the sun's rays, which bring them to maturity, and breaking with indefatigable perseverance the least clods of earth, which, accumulating around the tendrils, appeared to fatigue them by their weight. And woe to the thief whom they detected by night stealing any of these carefully reared grapes. His crime was punished with death, unless the inexperience of youth pleaded in his favour. In that case, a severe flagellation impressed on him permanently the remembrance of his fault and of the rights of property. The imperial jurisprudence afterwards softened the draconian rigour of this law of the decemviri. The ancients, like ourselves, were fond of seeing fresh grapes appear on their tables at all periods of the year. They preserved them by covering them with barley flour, or by placing fine bunches in rainwater, diminished to a third by boiling. The vase was hermetically sealed with pitch and plaster, and then placed in a spot where the sun's rays could not enter. This water was an excellent beverage for the sick. The method of making wine was precisely the same both in Greece and Italy. The vine-gatherers carefully rejected the green grapes, and piled the others in deep baskets, the contents of which were instantly emptied into large vats. There men, hardly clothed in the lightest garments, trampled them under their feet, whilst joyous songs and sounds of flutes hastened their movements, and animated them to work faster. Wine obtained in this manner was much esteemed, and kept very well. The wort which escaped from the vat as soon as they had thrown in the grapes, and which came from the pressure occasioned by their laying one on the other, enjoyed the preference. This first liquor was transformed into an exquisite wine. The grapes, crushed by the feet, were placed under the press, and an opening made in the lower part of the vat allowed the wort to flow into earthen jars, whence it was subsequently poured into the barrels. The press was always raised at a little distance from the cellar and kitchen. Its mechanism was very simple. The antiquities of Herculaneum will furnish us with an example. Two trees were firmly fixed in the ground, at a few feet distance, one from the other, and a strong horizontal beam rested on their summit. Other pieces of wood, similar to the top piece, were placed underneath. The grapes occupied the space between the vat and the lower plank. Between each of the cross planks, wedges were introduced, and two persons kept striking them with hammers, one on each side. It is thus the pressure was effected. Wine from the press, inferior to those just mentioned, served for the ordinary consumption of the family and for the servants. It was not racked, but simply taken from the barrel as it was wanted. The lees were taken from the press when it yielded no more liquor. A certain quantity of water was poured over them, and the whole subjected to a second pressure. The weak kind of wine obtained by this new operation must have somewhat resembled that acrid stuff called piquette in France. It was the beverage of the people, and especially of the country people, during the winter. A part of the wort, that which was required for immediate use, was put aside and clarified with vinegar. A portion of that obtained from the crushed grapes was put to boil on furnaces, supported on three legs, 
at a little distance from the press, in coppers, the contents of which were continually stirred. This liquor, reduced by a third, was called carinum. When the half only remained, it was called defrutum. And lastly, when the ebullition left only a third part remaining, this substance, very similar to honey, took the name of sapa. It was mixed with flour to flatten the snails reared by skilful speculators who reserved them for the Roman Sybarites. This wort, thus prepared by night when the moon did not shine, and carefully skimmed, served to preserve wines, to give more body to those which were thought too weak, and became the base of several beverages sought in preference by Roman ladies at that period of life when maturity of years made alliance with sensuality. Those who wished to preserve sweet wine during a whole year, filled with the second wort, that is to say, that which was produced by the pression of the feet, some amphorae covered with pitch inside and out. They were then hermetically sealed and buried in the sand, or plunged in cold water, where they remained at least two months. There still was left a large quantity of wort as it came from the grapes. This was taken into the cellar, which was always situated a little below the level of the ground, or to the ground floor, where no kind of smell was allowed to penetrate, or any emanation capable of spoiling the bouquet of the wine it contained. Description of Plate Number 22 Number 1. Wine Press, explained in the text. Number 2. A large vase, in which a man is sitting, supposed to be Diogenes. This amphora is broken, and the pieces are joined by ties of lead, cut dovetailed. It is a bas-relief, from the Villa Albani, published by Winkelmann. Number three represents a beast of burden, with a pack-saddle loaded with two amphorae. This piece of terracotta, drawn the size of the original, is taken from the collection of children's playthings of Prince de Biscari. The difficulty of carriage was so great in mountainous countries that the inhabitants of the Alps substituted for vessels of terracotta casks or wooden tubs, put together with wooden circles, similar to our own. At Herculaneum a spacious cellar has been discovered, round which hogsheads were ranged and built into the wall. Another cellar at Pompeii, remarkable for its small size, is divided into two compartments, both containing barrels, and divided one from the other by a horizontal wall. Large earthen vessels were found there, with and without handles, very carefully executed, and smeared with pitch. We know that the cynic Diogenes dwelt in one of these vases, and that the king Alexander found him crouching in this strange kind of carapace. The ancients had butts also, but they used them only in cold countries. The dolia, for so they were named, were first subjected to a fumigation with aromatic plants, then watered with sea water, and buried halfway in the earth. They were separated each one from the other, and strict attention was paid to see that the cellar contained neither leather, nor cheese, nor figs, nor old casks. Sometimes persons who inhabited the country paved the storeroom, spread sand, and placed the dolia on it. At the end of nine days, when the fermentation had cleared the wine from those substances it rejects, they carefully covered the dolia, 
after having smeared all the upper part of the inside, as well as the covers themselves, with a mixture of defrutum, saffron, mastic, pitch, and pine nuts. The butts of aqueous wine were exposed to the north. Spirituous wines often braved the rain, the sun, and every change of temperature. They accelerated the fining of the wine by throwing in plaster, chalk, marble dust, salt, resin, dregs of new wine, sea-water, myrrh, and aromatic herbs. The butts were uncovered once a month, or more frequently, in order to refresh the contents, and before the head was put on again it was rubbed with pine-nuts. Wine was also clarified by drawing it off into another butt, and mixing yolks of egg, beaten with salt, or straining it through the column nevarium, already described, covered with a piece of linen. Fine wines were kept in the wood for two, three, or four years, according to their different properties, after which they were transferred to amphorae, and that operation required the greatest care. Description of plate number 23. Columnivarium. A strainer used to separate the dregs from the wine. Two are preserved in the collection of Herculaneum. They are made of white metal and worked with elegance. Each is composed of two plates, round and concave, of four inches in diameter, supplied with flat handles. The two dishes, as it were, and their handles adapt to each other so well that when put together they appear as one. Holes, in great number, are symmetrically perforated in the upper dish, which keeps the dregs and lets the clear liquid pass through the lower one. The strainer here represented is taken from Montfaucon's Antiquities, and was found at Rome towards the end of the 17th century. It is of bronze and ornamented. On the handles are reliefs in silver, referring to the worship of Bacchus. The amphorae were earthen pitchers with two handles, reserved for choice wines. To prevent evaporation through their pores, they covered them with pitch and stopped the neck with wood or cork, covered with a mastic composed of pitch, chalk and oil, or any other fat substance. The name of the wine was inscribed on the amphora. Its age was indicated by the designation of the consuls who were in office when it was made. When the amphora was of glass, it was ticketed with these details. For this kind of vessels they had storerooms, which were commonly at the top of the house. By exposing them to the sun and to smoke, the maturity of the wine was hastened. The discovery of this means of ripening, which the Roman onophiles never failed to practice, was attributed to the consul Opimius. Pliny assures us that the vineyards of the entire world produce 195 different kinds of wine, or double that number if we reckon every variety. The whole universe, says he, furnishes only 80 of superior quality, and of this number two-thirds belong to Italy. Modern agriculture must have singularly disturbed the calculations of the Roman naturalist. Let that be as it may, the best Greek wines were those of Thassos, Lesbos, Chios, and Cos. Italy boasted of the Centinum, the Felernum, the Albanum, and the Mamertinum. 
after these a number of other excellent wines occupied a very distinguished place in a long nomenclature to be found in pliny and athenius description of plate number twenty four number one amphora or dolium upon one of the handles is engraved the sigil p s a x the first two probably are the initials of the proprietor and the last describes the capacity of the vase being two hundred and fifty quarts montfaucon's antiquities numbers two and three smaller dolium found at herculaneum buried at the bottom of a cellar the mouths of these vases were fixed in a marble slab and closed with a cover of the same material there is in the villa albani an amphora of terracotta of this kind which contained eighteen roman amphorae or four hundred and sixty-three quarts as marked by numerical letters engraved upon the outside in seventeen fifty one of these amphorae was found at puzzoli which was five feet six inches in height and five feet in diameter containing one thousand seven hundred and twenty-eight quarts several amphorae from herculaneum and pompeii have inscriptions written in colours and which give the name of the praetor nonius the same as those found at rome which were inscribed with the name of the consul to fix the year of the vintage the ancients professed to have a very particular veneration for wines of a renowned growth which had ripened slowly in amphorae some gastronomic archaeologists produced on their tables certain wines which had so far dried up in leather bottles that they were taken out in lumps others placed in the chimney corner became in time as hard as salt petronius speaks of a wine of a hundred leaves pliny says that guests were served with wine more than two hundred years old it was as thick as honey this wine was thinned with warm water and passed through the straining bag socatio vinorum this predilection for good old wine was common to the greeks the romans who liked it for the bitterness it had contracted by age and the egyptians who notwithstanding their time-honoured love of beer were not unjust towards the beverage with which their osiris found it so delightful to intoxicate himself athenius sets no bounds to his praise of old wine he says it is excellent for the health it is the best thing to dissolve the food it strengthens it assists the circulation of the blood and assures a peaceful sleep who then would be ungrateful enough to refuse to drink the topers of antiquity did not disdain white wine but they seem to have viewed it as of secondary importance it digests easily says the writer just cited but it is weak and has but little body red wine on the contrary is full of strength and energy and it is the first that the inhabitants of Chios learned to make when onopion the son of bacchus had planted the vine in their country however there was no lack of amateurs of white wine and like ourselves the ancients doubtless preferred it when they eat snails oysters or any of those shellfish with which the lucrine lake abounded they even took it into their heads how ingenious is gluttony to change red wine sometimes into white to do this it was only necessary to put three whites of egg or some bean flour into a flagon 
and shake it a long time. The same result was obtained with ashes from the white vine. Now, is Apicius jesting with us a little when he gives this recipe, or was it a legerdemain trick to amuse the guests at the end of a repast, when too frequent libations had rendered them incapable of distinguishing clearly one colour from another? The Greeks endeavoured to preclude the disastrous effects of intoxication by putting sea-water into the wine, a mixture which they also thought had the effect of assisting digestion. One measure of water was enough for fifty measures of wine, and again the merchants of that nation took so much interest in the health of foreign consumers that they never shipped the wines of the archipelago for Rome or elsewhere without diluting them in this manner. Such, for example, was the course followed in concocting that celebrated wine of Chaos, which Cato imitated so as to deceive the best judges. That honest geoponic has transmitted us his secret. Fifty-six pints of old sea-water are thrown into a pipe of sweet wine made with grapes dried in the sun, or two-thirds of a bushel of salt are put into a rush basket and suspended in the middle of the pipe where it is left to melt. This very simple process metamorphoses the most indifferent liquor into that delightful nectar which gave renown and fortune to the Isle of Chios. The saline wine of the Greeks, Vinum Thalassomenon, was nothing else. Their Thalassitas wine, so much in demand in Italy on account of its apparent age, owed its reputation to the fact of its having been plunged for some time in the sea. This little trading knavery was a tolerably innocent means of increasing the profits of the speculator, who hastened the maturity of his wines without employing any of those deleterious ingredients which illicit traders have introduced at a later period. When the wine had remained a sufficient time in the sea to give it age, it was drawn off into goatskin bottles, well coated with pitch, and, in this manner, it supported the longest sea voyages. The following are the made wines most in vogue in olden times. The Passum was one of those most esteemed in Rome, particularly when it came from Crete. It was made with grapes, spread in the sun until they were reduced in weight to one half. The pips, thus dried, were then put into a butt containing some excellent wort. When they were well soaked, they were crushed with the feet, and then subjected to a slight pressure in the wine-press. Sometimes they simply plunged the fresh grapes into boiling oil, instead of exposing them to the sun, and the result was the same. The dulce wine was obtained by drying the grapes in the sun for three days, and crushing them with the feet on the fourth, at the time of the greatest heat. The Emperor Commodus thought this a most delectable drink. The mulsum, or honeyed wine, was an exquisite mixture of old Falernian wine and new honey from the Mount Hymettus. The physician, Celius Aurelianus, recommends the holding of warm mulsum in the mouth as a palliative in cases of violent headache. The name Anisites wine was given to that in which some grains of aniseed had been infused. The granatum was prepared by throwing thirty broken pomegranates into a pipe of wine, and pouring over them ten pints and a half of a different wine, hard and sour. 
This drink was fit for use at the end of thirty days. Apicius gives us the recipe for the rosatum. Put, says he, some rose leaves into a clean linen cloth. Sew it up and leave it seven days in the wine. Take out the roses and put in fresh ones. Repeat the operation three times and then strain the wine. Add some honey at the time of drinking. The roses must be fresh and free from dew. The violatum is made in the same manner, only violets are used instead of roses. Rosatum may also be obtained without roses by putting a small basket filled with green lemon leaves into a barrel of new wine before the fermentation has taken place and leaving them there for 40 days. This wine is to be mixed with honey before it is drunk. Myrrh wine, myrrhinum, among the ancients, was wine mixed with a little myrrh to render it better and make it keep longer. They thought much of it. All these wines, like those previously mentioned, were strained through the columvinarium before they were served to the guests. This strainer was composed of two round, deep dishes of four inches in diameter. The upper part was pierced and received the wine, which ran into the lower recipient, whence the cups were filled. In Rome, the price of common wine, sometimes adulterated, was 300 sesterces for 40 urns, or 15 sesterces for an amphora. That is to say, about sixpence per gallon. At Athens, it was thought dear when it cost fourpence per gallon. This measure was commonly sold for not more than twopence. In the early days of the Roman Republic, women were forbidden to drink wine, but that law fell into disuse, and noble matrons often carried intemperance as far as their toping husbands. The Cure Wine it must be owned that the Roman law was for a long time tyrannical in the extreme with regard to women. Totally interdict the use of wine. Kill the unfortunate creatures who were unable to resist the seductions of that dangerous liquor. For the Roman history furnishes us with more than one example of that atrocious chastisement inflicted on the guilty thirst of the fair sex. The barbarous Mycenaeus immolated his wife on the butt at which he caught her one day, quenching her thirst at the tap or the bung-hole. The ferocious Romulus thought this act simple and natural. He did not even reprimand the cruel husband. Another unfortunate creature discovered the place where her husband kept the keys of the cellar. She took them and had the imprudent curiosity to go and visit the mysterious and inauspicious treasure to which she was forbidden all access. Her family perceived this innocent larceny, and refused her every kind of food to punish her for an imaginary crime. She died in the tortures of hunger. Is it necessary to speak of C. Domitius, that uncourteous judge who deprived a lady of her marriage portion, because she had taken the liberty to drink a spoonful or two of wine unknown to her lord and master? But, let us say it at once, Roman civilization put an end to such strange manners, and so early as the age of Augustus, Livia, the consort of that emperor, affirmed when eighty-two years old that she was indebted to Bacchus for her long existence. Let us remark, by the way, that the great prince, her husband, 
honoured the labours of the vine-dresser and the serious study of wines, to which little attention had been paid down to his time. It began then to be understood that this grateful drink draws the ties of friendship closer, and all honest people, all generous souls, were eager to taste it. The good Trajan quaffed off numberless cups every day. Of course, he became the idol of the human species. Agricola wished to drink before he died. The imbecile Claudius often found some ray of wisdom at the bottom of an amphora. Domitian merited the pardon of his crimes, thanks to the streams of wine which during the night ran from the fountains, and Caligula would perhaps have obtained that popularity which always failed him, had he possessed sufficient sense to offer to the Roman people the delicious Falernian wine he allotted to his favourite horse. The ladies ventured, in the first place, to wet their lips with a few drops of those light wines which the sun seemed to ripen for them at Tibur, in the environs of Cumae and throughout Campania. After a short time they braved the Falernian itself. True, they generally mixed it with iced water or snow, but the boldest are reported to have risked that dangerous liquor without taking such timid precautions. Falernian was a noble wine. They began to drink it as soon as it had reached its tenth year. Then it was possible to bear up against it. When it was twenty years old, it could only be mastered after it was diluted with water. If older, it was unconquerable. It attacked the nerves and caused excruciating headache. The ladies struggled a long time for the victory, but alas, the Falernian always had the best of it. Tired out at length with so many useless efforts, the wisest of them left it to their husbands, and sought other beverages which possessed less dangerous charms. Greece and Italy invented new drinks for them, which had a well-merited vogue, notwithstanding the discredit into which they have fallen for many centuries past. Our modern beauties would smile with an air of incredulity if we were to extol asparagus wine, winter savoury wine, wild marjoram wine, parsley seed wine, or those made from mint, rue, pennyroyal, and wild thyme. And yet these liquors were the delectable drinks of the most distinguished women of ancient Rome, of those women who could never find in the culinary productions of the entire universe anything sufficiently delicate or rare. Are we, then, to blame their taste, or question our own? Leaving aside this naughty question, which we do not feel ourselves called upon to resolve, let us state that these different drinks were prepared in a very simple manner. Two handfuls of one of the above-named plants were put into a butt of wort. A pint of sapa and half a pint of sea-water were added. This wine was drunk by the Greek and Roman ladies at breakfast, and was an excellent substitute for the salatum, a drink prepared with ochre, and which we can hardly believe to have been introduced by sensuality alone. It frequently happened, after a banquet, that the wearied and palled stomach refused with loathing the least nourishment. An intelligent slave failed not, under such circumstances, to present his languishing mistress with a cup of wormwood wine, before she quitted her couch. Anon, the livid paleness of her complexion brightened into the rosy hue of health, 
the dimmed eye resumed its wonted lustre, and that very evening the brilliant matron could seat herself fearlessly at a fresh banquet. That precious wine, that fashionable tonic, which modern sobriety, be it said to our praise, has rendered almost useless, sold well in Rome under the reigns of the emperors. It was composed by boiling a pound of wormwood in 240 pints of wort, until it was diminished one-third. There was also a more simple method of making it, which was to throw a few handfuls of wormwood into a butt of wine. The live wood, or the leaves of the cedar, the cypress, the laurel, the juniper tree, or the turpentine tree, boiled a long time in wort, produced different bitter liqueurs, to which intemperance complacently attributed benign qualities and numerous medical virtues. Equal praise may be accorded to hyssop wine, that famous mixture of three ounces of the plant in twelve pints of wort. Its effects were surprising, and the most popular physicians would not have failed to prescribe it for their languishing patients, whose strength and gaiety it restored. But, thank heaven, our Roman beauties were not always obliged to have recourse to the gloomy experience of the disciples of Aesculapius, and when they were in good health, more exhilarating liqueurs lent their aid to toast their return to health and pleasure. They were then seen sipping myrtle wine, a mild beverage, the light vapours of which brought down calm and profound sleep. It was wisdom to drink it, for alas, not all that would can sleep. If the reader be troubled with wakefulness, he will hail with joy the recipe for this beneficent narcotic. Let him take young myrtle branches with the leaves, pound them, and boil one pound in eighteen pints of white wine, until it is reduced to two-thirds. Let him drink this liqueur of the Roman ladies, and without doubt he will sleep as they did. The petite maîtresse, those delicate women whose life seemed to be a tissue of vapours mingled with tears, Rome abounded with them, would have fainted even at the smell of the wines made up in the manner indicated above. Their frail, nervous organisation required a different kind of drink, and one was invented for them. The adinamon. This adinamon, or wine without strength, was the most inoffensive of liqueurs. It was obtained by boiling ten pints of water in twenty pints of white wort. A small cup of this salutary beverage restored a debile Cynthia, a sickly Julia, when, negligently seated at her toilet, a Boeotian slave brought a nosegay of lilies instead of a crown of roses. These charming creatures would soon have lost the use of their senses if the adenamon had not been promptly applied to their lips. But hardly had they tasted the marvellous liqueur, when animation resumed its calm and peaceful course. Nay, after the lapse of a few seconds, they were enabled without any inconvenience whatever to witness the chastisement of the slave, whose naked shoulders and breasts were lacerated by their orders with a thong studded with sharp points. Who, after that, would dare doubt the properties of the adinamon wine? The unanthonum wine was destined for more vigorous constitutions, for natures of less exquisite delicacy. The Roman ladies, somewhat fond of rusticating, who passed a part of the year in their villas, 
prepared it by putting two pounds of wild vine flowers into a butt of wort. They were left there thirty days, and then the liquor was drawn off into other vessels. Such were the vinous drinks which fashion formerly brought into repute in the capital of the world. The women set no bounds to their taste for these concocted wines, but went on from one excess to another as long as the empire lasted. These strange habits, now buried under the Roman Colossus, have been replaced by a new order of civilization. Woman, that graceful being of whom antiquity was not worthy, now appears such as Christianity has made her, to reveal to us virtues which ancient Greece and Italy never knew. Daughter, wife, and mother, she consoles, encourages, and supports man amid the trials of life. Her sweet smile welcomes him at the cradle. Her prayer accompanies him to the tomb. It was she who softened the ferocious instincts of the barbarous hordes that the forests of the north vomited over Europe. And still exercising her empire over modern society, she is hailed as a queen, whose virtues and chaste attractions render her the living embodiment of the flower and the angel, those sweet symbols of love and beauty, between which a modern poet has gracefully placed her throne. The primitive inhabitants of Great Britain learned from the Romans to plant the vine under the reign of the Emperor Probus. The conquerors taught them also the art of cutting it, and how to make wine. But, as Strutt observes, the wine could never be of any great utility in this country. It was more ornamental than useful, with the exception that it afforded the means of procuring a cool retreat and shade. However, some provinces of England became celebrated for their wines. The county of Gloucester is renowned for its vines, says William of Malsbury and the wines it produces are scarcely inferior to those of France. St. Louis was the first who established statutes for the dealers in wine. New ones were framed in 1585, and the dealers were then divided into four classes, each of which was designated by a particular name, namely the innkeepers, the publicans, the tavern keepers, and the wine dealers by measure. The innkeepers had accommodation for man and horse. The publicans served drink with tablecloth and plates, that is to say, they might serve food and drink at the same time. The tavern keepers served drink alone, and the retail dealers could only sell it in considerable quantities at one time. In 1680, these four classes were reduced to two, wine merchants and retail wine dealers. Under the reign of Louis Fourteenth, a great dispute arose concerning the relative merits of Burgundy and Champagne wines, and the preference due to the one or the other. This quarrel originated in a thesis maintained at the commencement of the 17th century at the Medical School of Paris, in which it was asserted that the wine of Beaune in Burgundy was not only the most agreeable, but the most wholesome. This thesis excited no murmur at the time. From the 13th century, the wine of Bone had always enjoyed the highest reputation, and no one dreamed of disputing it. But 40 years later, they risked a proposition much more rash than the preceding one. It was maintained in the same school that the wines of Burgundy were not only preferable to those of Champagne, but that the latter attack the nerves 
cause a fermentation of the humours, and infallibly bring on the gout in persons not naturally subject to it. They fortified this incredible opinion with the authority of the celebrated Fagon, chief physician of Louis the Fourteenth, who had just forbidden the king, as they said, the use of champagne wine. The champagne people took fire. It was time. The dangerous heresy threatened to spread, so they attacked the Burgundians bravely. The latter defended themselves with equal courage. The battle waxed warm. Each party sought to crush their antagonists with heavy writings. The inhabitants of Burgundy pretended that the wine of Champagne owed its vogue entirely to the influence of Colbert and Louvois, the then ministers, one of whom was a native of Champagne, and the other in possession of immense vineyards. The Champagne growers proved that this assertion was false in every particular. Long before the time of these two statesmen, said they, the French got tipsy on Champagne wine. Ergo, they valued that exhilarating liquor. This argument was irrefragable. They might have added that, from the 16th century, the wine of Aix, a canton of Champagne, enjoyed such renown that the Emperor Charles V, Pope Leo X, Henry VIII of England, and Francis I of France, were anxious to possess this nectar. And tradition assures us that each of these great sovereigns purchased a close at Aix, in which a little house was built for a vine-dresser, who sent them every year a stock of wine, which enlivened their repasts. The Epicureans took part in this great discussion, and that they might give their judgment after mature deliberation, founded on a perfect knowledge of facts. They have been tasting champagne and burgundy wines these two hundred years. May the vouchers in this suit never fail them. Wine was long used for presents and fees, a custom established under Charlemagne. After baptism, a marriage or a burial, the priests received the vicar's wine. Before marriage, wedding wine was offered to the intended bride. After a lawsuit, the councillor was presented with clerk's wine. The wine of citizenship was given to the mayor of a town in which any person took up his abode. This present subsequently took the name of pot de vin, or bribe, still in great favour. It has changed its character, certainly, but the variations have multiplied to infinity. In the Middle Ages, sober people intoxicated themselves regularly once a month. Arnaud de Villeneuve examined seriously the advantages of this hygienic custom. There was a kind of glory attached to the swallowing of more wine than any other man, without being non-composmentous. There was, however, a means of avoiding these bacchanalian encounters. It was to choose a champion, who, as in judicial combats, accepted the challenges for his candidate, to whom the victory or defeat was attributed, as if he himself had drunk. In the Middle Ages and in the 16th century, intoxication was severely punished in France. By five ordinances, in the years 802, 803, 810, 812 and 813, Charlemagne declares habitual drinkers unworthy of being heard before courts of justice in their own cause or as witness for another. Francis I decreed by an edict in the month of August, 1536, 
that whosoever should be found intoxicated was to be imprisoned on bread and water for the first offence. The second time flogging in the prison was added. The third time he was publicly flogged, and if the offender was incorrigible, his ears were cut off, he was deemed infamous, and banished the kingdom. Now every one is free to quench his thirst, and drink more if he chooses. Quote by Strutt The craft to make Ipocras Take a quart of red wine, an ounce of cinnamon, and half an ounce of ginger, a quarter of an ounce of grains, and long pepper, and half a pound of sugar, and bros all this, not too small, and then put them in a bag of woollen cloth, made therefore, i.e. for that purpose, with the wire, and it hang over a vessel till the wine be run through. End of quote. The English were extremely partial to a drink they called clary, or clar. According to Arnold, it was compounded in the following manner. For eighteen gallons of good wine, take half a pound of ginger, quarter of a pound of long pepper, an ounce of saffron, a quarter of an ounce of coliander, two ounces of calomel dramaticus, and the third part as much honey that is clarified as of your wine. Strain them through a cloth, and do it unto a clean vessel. John, in the first year of his reign, made a law that a ton of Rochelle wine should not be sold for more than twenty shillings, a ton of wine from Anjou for twenty-three shillings, and a ton of French wine for twenty-five shillings, except some that might be of the very best sort, which was allowed to be raised to twenty-six shillings and fourpence, but not for more in any case. By retail, a gallon of Rochelle wine was to be sold for fourpence, and a gallon of white wine for sixpence, and no dearer. End of section 30